I don't know if you guys are... There's a couple things we're going to intertwine this morning as we talk about that's going to lead us into what we're looking at in Esther today. I'm a little bit geeky in some things. Hey, you don't have to laugh at that, Mandy. It's not that funny. Um, but but I, like, I, like, I like to know like origins of holidays and stuff. I like to know where things come from. Like, why do we do Christmas like we do it? And there for a little while, it sent me into kind of a tailspin, and I thought, well, we shouldn't do it because, you know, like we're worshiping the Asherah pole when we put up the Christmas tree. And, you know, then, of course, who knows what you find on the Internet that tells you stuff like this, right? But I do like to know what the roots of things are. I like to know what the history of holidays and stuff uh, look like, where they come from. And we're going to see, we're going to celebrate Purim Wednesday night together on the official date that Purim happens, which is really neat. Today we're going to see where that came from, how that came from, uh, if you can see how something comes from something. And then... The other thing that I'm interested in is, and I'm just really starting to pique my interest in this, is like family history and such. And not necessarily like looking up who was my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and was he um, some, uh, like Kendall William Wallace or something. It's not necessarily that. It's, it's kind of to see the heritage and, the, and the, the family traits that have passed down from one generation to another. Uh, Don says all the time, you know, the, the, the Smiths, talks about the Smiths, which it, when I scroll through my phone now, I've got so many S's on my phone in my contacts. I'm like, Smith, 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 Smith. Um, but the Smiths act a certain way. The Smiths do a certain thing, and they Smiths don't do this. And I'm, I'm looking at myself, and I'm saying, what do Moors do? You know, how, what, what does characterize us? So this is just starting to kind of fester and boil in me. And as I studied for the message this week... They jumped out again. So what we're going to kind of look at today as we work through Esther 9 is kind of the combination of these things. And when we get into our application points today, I just want you to know these things are going to come directly out of the passage and hopefully directly into our lives. The history of things, the traits of certain families and passing on things. And right now that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I understand that. Hopefully by the end of our time together today it will. We do find ourselves today in Esther chapter 9. We're going to do what we've done before in the past few weeks. We're going to read the end of Esther 8 and then reestablish where we've been and then march forward through Esther 9 a few verses at a time. So if you would stand, we're going to read Esther chapter 8 verses 15 through 17, I believe is what we've got up there. 13 through 17 shows what I know. So let's read from uh, verse 13 of chapter 8, and we stand because we believe these are the very words of God. So we are in reverence and awe of what we're about to read. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on the swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, 
And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's pray. God, as we approach your word today, we believe in the power of your word. We believe that what we have just read was directly inspired by you. We believe that what we'll read through Esther 9 has been directly inspired by you and thus are your very words. And therefore they are profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be adequate, supplied for every good work. May you supply us today through the power of your word and as your spirit moves in us and through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So what we saw there starting in verse 13 was something had been written. An edict had been issued. What was going on? Last week we found that Esther had requested that an edict go forth. This was her request to King Xerxes that an edict would go forth that the Jews who were scheduled for destruction on the 13th day of the 12th month would be able to defend themselves. Because... The, the decrees and the edicts of the Medes and the Persians can't be overridden. You can't undo them. You can't revoke them. So Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had made a decree previously that said on the 13th, month, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the Jews were to be destroyed, annihilated, and killed in every province of the Persian Empire. So Esther said, I know what we'll do. We'll make an edict that says they can defend themselves. Men, women, children, doesn't matter. Whoever comes after them, they can defend themselves. Because legally, before they couldn't have. They could have tried, but now they've got the legal authority to do what they should have been able to do anyway. Actually, this should have never been happening because years and years and years ago, about a thousand years ago, King Saul should have killed all the Amalekites and therefore there would be no Agagites, which is what Haman was. So if everybody would have done what they were supposed to do, this would have never happened. But it did happen. So Esther's got to do something about it. And now her newly promoted father-slash-cousin, Mordecai, the Jew, can stand up with the signet ring on his finger that the king gave him that used to be Haman's and write this edict and send it all out through the provinces. So that's what happened. And then we saw at the end there, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king. He's in royal robes. He's in blue and white. Crown, robe, looking good. They're chanting Mordecai everywhere. Mordecai, Mordecai. And he's like, it's all right, it's all right. I'm a big deal. And he knows that. So He's like, I'm going to build a wall around Persia. It's going to be huge. It's going to be a huge wall. You're going to love it. And it's going to be awesome. It'll be the best wall you've ever seen. And they're like, Mordecai. So the edict goes out that the Jews can protect themselves. Now, remember, that was in the third month that we saw all that. So we're waiting for what? We're waiting for the 12th month, 12th month to come because in the, on the 13th day of the 12th month is when the edict to destroy the Jews was given or, or appointed. So we come now to chapter 9. And what we've done between chapter 8 and chapter 9 is we have fast forwarded from the 3rd month to the 12th month. So we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Okay. Now in the 12th month which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. 
The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Now let's stop there. So the twelfth month comes. The thirteenth day of the twelfth month comes. And the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. So listen to me. I want you to get a picture of what's going on in these provinces. So they've had two edicts come out. One in the first month from Haman. And that edict was, kill every Jew that's breathing air. Annihilate them, wipe them out. And everybody's like, okay. Then in the third month, this new edict comes out which says the Jews can defend themselves. And the Jews are like, okay. So what's going on in nine months between the third month and the twelfth month? What we see here is that there were people who were still planning on killing the Jews. Now, is that weird? It's weird to me. Because they're saying, hey, kill all the Jews. Okay, we'll do that. That's fine. But then the edict comes out behind it that everybody else, everybody got as well, which says, but the Jews can defend themselves. And then people are saying, good, we'll kill them anyway. Let them defend themselves. We're going to kill them anyway. That's hatred. And also, the edict from Haman had said, and you can take their plunder. So what's that? It's greed. Let me say this, and let me say it as plain and as clear as I can say it. I wonder and I marvel sometimes how people can do what they do in the world. And looking at this, hatred and greed have incredibly blinding powers. If you hate somebody, you'll do stupid stuff toward them. If you're greedy... You're going to do stupid stuff. Listen, there are stories floating out every day about good people who've done stupid things to get some money. And I tell you that because I just want you to, I just want you to hear me say, be careful because that one little compromise can put you on a path that you don't want to be on that can lead to a place where you don't want to be, especially when it comes to hatred and greed. So for nine months, these people had been planning, we're going to kill the Jews anyway. Let them try to defend themselves. We're going to kill them. So it went out. The edict was about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews... So they had enemies. These are people that hated them. And they hoped to gain mastery over the Jews. But it says, and here is... One of the major themes of Esther, it says the reverse occurred. Reversal is a major theme in this book, right? We've seen a lot of people. I mean, we saw Esther who was a poor peasant girl, and all of a sudden she's queen. That's a reversal. We saw Mordecai who was, had a position of power in the gate, and then we see him mourning and weeping because the Jews are about to be destroyed. And then we see Mordecai taken from the gate, who was the enemy of Haman, and Haman has to walk him around and parade him through town saying this is what, the, what happens to the man that the king wants to honor. There's a reversal. And then Haman's killed, taken from a place of power to the gallows. That's a reversal. And you see it all through the book. I don't want to 
ad nauseum here, but you see, one of the points of this book is that God reverses things. And He providentially reverses things. Because we don't see much direct interaction with God in this book. I think we see it once or twice. But what you see are everyday events working toward, we sang it, you work everything for good. All the pieces of my life. And we see that here in Esther time and time again in the form of reversal. And we see that finally here, and this is the peak, this is the climax. Now we saw some really powerful emotion and we saw high-pitched stuff when Esther went before the king. But this is it. This is what everything is building toward. This edict where the Jews are to be destroyed. And what happens was they want to master the Jews, but the reverse occurred. And it says the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. No one could stand against them. Was it because they were this mighty military force? No, these are a bunch of just Jewish peasants living in Persia. They weren't a major force in the Persian Empire. They had this deal going on in Jerusalem, which was looking up, which we saw in Ezra 1 through 6. But these people weren't military. They weren't warriors. They were just people eking out an existence. But nobody could stand before them. Why? Because the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Now, God did that. God put the fear of them in people's hearts. We looked last week at how if you watch through Ezra 1 through 6, you see God doing something in Jerusalem and people are taking notice. Well, now you had the edict from Haman and then the edict from Mordecai. Mordecai is in a place of power. Esther reveals herself to be Jewish. So the whole Persian Empire has to be going, hmm, hmm. These Jewish people, there's something about them. And here we see that God puts a full-fledged fear of the Jews in the hearts of the people of the Persian Empire. Makes me think of Joshua chapter 1. I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 2. When Rahab comes to the spies who were hiding in her house. Listen to what she says to the spies. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And we don't just see that in Joshua. We see it all through the Old Testament. We see God going before His people and the fear of them being placed in the hearts of the people that they're about to fight or conquer. And we see that exact same thing here in Esther. God goes before these Jewish peasants... And he puts the fear of them. No one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. But that's not all that happened. Verse 3 says, All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. 
I told you, Mordecai's a rock star, y'all. Mordecai's a big deal. And again, we're nine months down the road from the time that he got promoted, so he's just getting more and more and more and more power, more and more and more renown. So all the, all the provinces that have governors and satraps and all these people who are ruling are ruling underneath who? Mordecai. And they're afraid of him. They're like, I'm going to help the Jews because if I don't, Mordecai's going to have my head. He's going to put me on a gallows, just like what happened to Haman. So God had placed Mordecai. It's funny that they don't mention being afraid of Queen Esther. But she's got some power too. We've already seen that through the course of this. But the fear of Mordecai had fallen upon the, the satraps and the governors and the royal agents. And they all helped the Jews. So the government, the people in power, the police, so to speak, were on the side of the Jews. God had worked this out. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. And let me just say, that was God's doing. That was not because Mordecai was really cool. Maybe he was really cool. But God did that. God did that for him so that his people would be protected. So this is God's doing. Now let's read verses 5 through 10. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, here we go, Parshandatha and Dolphin and Aspatha and Porthana and Adelia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vyasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So, this thing starts on the 13th day of the 12th month. And what happens? In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Notice it doesn't say women and children, by the way. Men. Because they had the right to destroy women and children by the edict. But that was if the women and children attacked them. What we see in Susa, and this is just in Susa, just in the capital, just in the citadel, it says that the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. And in Susa, the capital, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Now... How many people are in here? 40, 50? 55. We've got first-hand knowledge. So what if everybody in here was dead? And you're walking through, you're like, dude, that's a bunch of dead people. How about 500? 500 dead people is a lot of people, y'all. And in Susa, the capital, which was a big place. It was a big city. It wasn't like it was just here. In Susa, the capital, there were 500 dead men and... Ten guys, too. Who were these guys? We're not going to read their names again because that's just crazy. The ten sons of Haman. So again, put yourself in their place, in the sons of Haman's place. So Haman's been dead for nine months now. And what are his boys doing? They're plotting how they're going to get back at the Jews. Now why do you think they're planning that and plotting that? I'd say like father, like son. 
They had heard so much venom and so much hatred coming from their father's mouth about these Jews. When they killed their daddy, they're like, we're going to get these Jews back. Let them put out an edict that says they can protect themselves because we are the ten sons of Haman. And they'll never be able to stand against us. These people were stupid. And they were stupid because they were hateful and greedy. And they had no concept of the fear of the Lord, much less the fear of the Lord's people. And it cost them their lives. 500 men in Susa and the ten sons of Haman. Hatred and greed had blinded them to the point that they didn't care what happened to them. They were going to kill the Jews. And it didn't work out very well for them. It says the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. But now look at the end of verse 10. They killed the 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Now Mordecai's edict had said, kill them if they come against you, you can protect yourself, and you can take the plunder if you want. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That's a lot of, that's 500 people, 510 maybe. Maybe they're counting Haman's sons in with the 500. I don't know, we'll say 510. That's a lot of plunder. That's a lot of dead people with a lot of stuff you could take from them. I mean, some of these people were probably wealthy. Why didn't the Jews take the plunder? I think it's an honor thing. First of all, I think they're saying, I don't want your stuff. Just leave me alone. Go on. Get on, get on out of here. Get off my property. Get on out of here. And when they didn't, they killed them. Because again, these people were attacking them. The Jews weren't going into their homes to attack them. These people were coming to them to attack them. They killed them. And they could have said, hey, where's that guy live? I'm going to take his stuff. But what does that imply? It implies hatred and greed. And the Jews here are not ascribed those things. They're not, a, they're not ascribed hatred. They're, they are ascribed, I'm going to defend myself and my family, which is right and honorable, by the way, even today. And they sure don't want their stuff because that's nah, all right, don't need it. God will provide for me. And again, maybe we're reading too much into this spiritually, but I'm just saying it says they laid no hand on the plunder. And that says a lot to me about the Jews in Susa, because that's where we're at right now. Now 11 through 14. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also, that's what 510, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. So, on the day that it happened, they come to the king, they say, Hey, Hey king, 500 guys and Haman's sons, they're all dead. 
King comes to Esther and says, Hey, Esther, seems like things are going pretty good for your people. 500 people dead in Susa and the 10 sons of Haman. So now what do you want? Which, again, knowing this guy, he just kind of postures himself for something that he wants. But anyway, he says, Now what do you want? Now he didn't offer her up to half of the kingdom here. I think because Mordecai is so powerful, he knows that she don't need that. But he says, What do you want? And Esther said, Now... These Jews had not laid hand on the plunder. That's really nice and sweet, right? So what would Esther ask for? Nothing, O king, just your love. No. Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now what? Vindictive much, Esther? You mad? You mad, bro, sis? What's going on here? Sounds like she's saying, let's do it again. Let's kill more Persians. We like this. I've been talking to my friends and they like to kill the Persians. Let's kill some more Persians. That's not what's going on, okay? She's not a dummy. People aren't just going to say, okay, we'll just stop. So she says, here in Susa, and it's only in Susa, let today's edict be carried out tomorrow too because I don't think people are just going to lay down and say, okay, well, the Jews win. She knows that people are going to be mad. I want my daddy's records. No, I, want, I want You killed my daddy, so I'm going to kill you. She knows that the anger and the wrath is not going to abate overnight, so she says, give my people the right here in Susa to protect themselves again tomorrow. Again, that's not mean. That's not vindictive. Just smart. Because people don't just get rid of their greed and their anger. They want to carry it on out. So Esther says, let us defend ourselves again here in Susa. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now that sounds just mean, right? They're dead anyway. They've been killed. We've established that twice. Why this? Is she just being... I don't know how you spell that. No, I don't think she is. I think she's showing, she wants to show people all around her what's going on. And this is a sign. This is a visual depiction of what happens when you come against the Jewish people. We did it nine months ago with their daddy. And we're doing it again in the twelfth month to show you guys, don't try it. It didn't work for their daddy. It didn't work for them. It's not going to work for you. It's going to turn out poorly for you. Maybe that 75-foot gallows was still there. I don't know. Either way, ten sons of Haman hanging on a gallows somewhere, impaled with a stake going through them, on display for everybody to see, don't mess with the Jews! Because this is what happens. I think it's very compassionate what she did there, truthfully. I'm not trying to paint her too nice a stroke, but I think she's just trying to show people, look, think about it tomorrow when you come out of your homes. If you're thinking about attacking the Jews, look at these ten guys. I think it's very nice of her. That doesn't say that there, but that's really what I believe. Verses 15 and 16. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day, which is the next day of the month of Adar. And again, we're in Susa. We're in Susa. 
And they killed 300 men in Susa. So we're up to 800 in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Still not taking stuff. It's not what they're after. Now, verse 16. The rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. So let's go kingdom-wide. So we're up to 810 in Susa and 75,000 people over the rest of the kingdom. Now get that in your head. We're basically right at 76,000 people who decided that their hatred and their greed were reason enough to try to kill the Jews. Even though there was a Jewish queen and the second in command was a Jew who had become more and more powerful. Now that's just stupid. And that's what hatred and greed do to us. 76,000 people. The kingdom of Persia was about the size of the United States. Big land mass, a lot of people. And 76,000 of them were stupid enough to act on their hatred and their greed. And it cost them their lives. And still, not just in Susa, but all over the kingdom, the Jews laid no hands on the plunder. Listen to me, they had every right to lay hands on the plunder. They could have, legally, and nobody would have batted an eye. They would have said, that's what the edict said. But they didn't lay hands on the plunder. They could have, but they didn't. They were justified in doing it, but they didn't do it. Tuck that away. We're going back there when we get to application, okay? Now, 17 through 19. Mm-hmm. Seventy-seven thousand people in Raleigh County. Five hundred ten. So that's funny. So they they killed Raleigh County, and no one wept. No, <laughs> was no plunder to take. We po folk. <laughs> Seventeen through nineteen. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as the day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as the day on which they send gifts for food to one another. let, let Let me just break this down real quick. So the rural Jews, the Raleigh County Jews, right? Um, The people who weren't in Susa gathered on the 13th day of the month because that's when the edict was issued. That's when everything was supposed to come down. They protected themselves. And so on the 14th day, the day after, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. Now in Susa, we saw that they had two days where they were carrying out this craziness. That was the 13th and the 14th, so they rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness in Susa alone. So Susa, the party's on the 15th, the rest of the kingdom, the party's on the 14th. Okay? That's all that's saying. And it says that they they set it up as a holiday and as a day on which they would send gifts of food to one another. 
So they're setting up a holiday. So here's, here's our roots. Here's our, what's going on here. When we talk about Purim on Wednesday, here's what we're talking about. What, what are we celebrating Wednesday when we come together? We're celebrating the rest that these people, the joy that these people had the day after they got to protect themselves and they weren't destroyed. That's what we'll be celebrating. Okay? We see that here. Now, Susa, they did it a day later because they defended themselves two days in a row. That's all that passage there means. Now, 20 through 22 gives us a little bit more information about what this looks like. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. There's reversal and they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So they did this. They said, hey, let's party. Let's have a holiday. And then Mordecai said, I'll do even more than that. I'll send out letters that we should do this year by year. And since there were two days that he knew of, he said, make it a two-day festival. Make it a two-day feast. We'll do it on the 14th and the 15th day of the month, year by year. So... The Jewish festival, feast, holiday of Purim is the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar, which for us, obviously, is about this time of year. February, March, they they go by a lunar calendar. Just so you know, for those of you that don't know, the Jews went by a lunar calendar. We go by a solar calendar. That's where their their calendar matches up with the phases of the moon. Ours is more about the sun, and it's all that rotation and jazz and... We go round and it stays there and we're doing this, but the moon's doing that, so the Jews are looking at that and they're matches, so I don't know. Just so you know, that's why their calendar doesn't match up with our calendar. They go by the, a lunar calendar. And they don't have a leap year day, they have a leap month. Every so often they have an extra month in their calendar to make up for the difference in the, I don't understand it all. But just so you know, that's why, we didn't, that's why it doesn't say here and gather on February 28th and do this. Because their calendar is different than ours. I just want you to know that. So so they have two days. Mordecai says, let's do this every year. Let's celebrate every year. And what we'll do is, since we got relief from our enemies, and our sorrow was turned into gladness, and we went from mourning to a holiday, let's get together, let's feast and be glad, and let's send gifts of food to each other, and let's give gifts to the poor. Because it turns mourning into joy. It turns... Sorrow into gladness and mourning into a holiday. So that's how they celebrate Purim. To do what? To remember what had happened when they were delivered from the hand of Haman the Agagite. That's why they do this. And they're still doing it today. We'll do it Wednesday to show that they're still doing it today. So this letter that Mordecai sent out to all the provinces had its effect. They practiced it, are still practicing it, and we're going to practice it Wednesday. Not to become Jewish, but just to kind of get a grasp of what happened here in Esther so that we can celebrate the deliverance of God for His people. So it worked. Mordecai's letters worked. And they instituted this holiday. Now we're going to see 23 through 28. 
So the Jews accepted what they, started, what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, P-U-R, that is lots, they cast lots, to crush and destroy them, the Jews. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, reversal, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they call these days Purim after the term Pur. So again, we kind of see that. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of... I lost my place, sorry. Because of all that was written in the letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Now, anybody got a diploma? It's got all kinds of fancy words on it. And you're going to hear unto on the twelfth day of the year of 2018 of our Lord... We hear upon, throw upon this poor fool who's completed these words. The title of, whereas we have authority. That's what's going on here. Okay? It's just real wordy. And it's saying the same thing we just looked at, basically. Because the Jews said, got the letter, Mordecai, we're going to do it. That's basically how we could sum up 23 through 28. We got the letter and we're never going to stop doing it. Because it's good. And we remember that it was because Haman had cast the lots, which they called pur, P-U-R, pure. It's not pure, it's pur, which sounds really silly to say. It feels really funny coming pur, pur. Sounds like I've got a speech impediment. I'm trying to say you're poor, folk, but pur, pur. So because he had cast the pur, they call the feast Purim, after the lots that were cast. And then he goes, thereupon and hereunto forever and ever, amen, we're going to do this. And it shall never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So from now until forever, Jews do this. Now, last four verses. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. Now, what happens here? All of a sudden we see Esther come back into the picture. Mordecai's been sending out all these edicts and he's powerful in the kingdom. But here, Queen Esther. Not just Esther, but Queen Esther. And not just Queen Esther. Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel. And Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. So they got the letter said we should do this. But then they got a second letter that came afterward. Wasn't just from Mordecai the Jew. It was from Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel. Now, let's dive into that a second. Why? Why a second letter? I mean, they're like, we got it. It's cool. We like it. Two days of feasting. Holiday. We, yeah, okay. 
But then this second letter comes out. And it's got Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew's authority upon it. Now we know that Mordecai the Jew was second in command. He was mighty in the land, growing ever more and more in power. But Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, also says, let's do this. Now, Queen Esther, remember, Esther is her Persian name, right? Hadassah was her Hebrew name. So here we see the authority that Mordecai had, Queen Esther has as well in the pagan culture. But she's also called the daughter of Abihel here. Now, Abihel is a Hebrew name, and it means father of the mighty. Now, I think that's important. I think there's probably a good reason why that's included here. Listen, all the other feasts and festivals and holidays that the Jews adhered to, who gave them those? It starts with G, ends with D, and there's a short O sound in the middle. God! God gave them directly to Moses, said, write this down. You're going to celebrate this feast on this day. This is how you're going to do it. You're going to afflict yourself this day. You're going to celebrate on this day. You're going to spend seven days fasting and feasting here, or feasting. He never said seven days fasting, but one day of fasting in the Jewish calendar prescribed by God. One. One. The rest were feasts. Amen. Right? Amen. Yes. We say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. And so... All the other feasts and festivals that they had came directly from the mouth of God Himself. So if you're going to say, okay Jews, from now on we're going to celebrate a new holiday, a new feast, you better have some authority to do that. Because you're altering their calendar. The calendar that God Himself had set up. And now they're saying, in this month, on these two days, we're going to celebrate this feast and it's going to be a perpetual statute for every Jew who ever lives. You better have some authority if you're going to say that. And we see that she had not only pagan authority, but she had her Jewish roots. And even her her father's name shows that she is mighty. The daughter of Abihel, who is the father of the mighty. So Mordecai said, hey, let's send out a second letter. Let's put your name on it and your dad's name on it. Just so everybody's cool with this. And we can establish it, and it's legitimate. Esther says, okay, we'll send it to everybody. Letters were sent to all the Jews. A second letter, it says, about Purim. And then it ends up in our Old Testament, which means that God gave His authority to it. So this is the real deal. This is not just them wanting to have a party. Somebody says, fire up the Lionel Richie and let's dance all night long. We're going to party. I'm not going to go there. So the authority comes from God Himself through Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew. It says, As Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. Listen to me. This poor little peasant girl who was hiding her identity in the beginning of the book now has the ultimate authority in the kingdom. Not just in the kingdom of Persia, 
but the very voice of God speaks through her letter. That's a reversal. That's awesome. And the Jews are still doing it today. We'll do it Wednesday, and we say, yes, yes, amen, Lord. So we see the roots, the beginnings of this Feast of Purim that we're going to celebrate. We see where it came from. We see what happened. We see that there was a letter and then another letter confirming it. And so the Jews still do it. But as we move to application, the question we should always ask is what? So then what do we do about this? Three application points. They are P-U-R. Huh? Come on. Huh? Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Oh, stop it. You're too much. Okay. How can we apply what we saw today in Esther chapter 9? P-U-R. The first one is preservation. The second one is unselfishness, which is the U. And the R is remembrance. Preservation, unselfishness, and remembrance. Preservation. Tradition. Tradition! Tradition. The Papa, right? It's the Papa. The Papa! Fiddler on the Roof. Y'all need to watch it. So good. So good. Preservation. I want to ask you this question. What are the traditions of your family? Now, let me tell you what you jump to. You jump to, well, this is what we do on Christmas. This is what we do on Easter. And those are not bad. Those are good. But I want to ask you this. What are the traditions in your family based on what God has done in your life? Have there been dramatic, traumatic, beautiful, wonderful, scary hard things that you've gone through as an individual or as a family that you can look back on and say, God did that! And so we're going to commemorate it. And year after year, we're going to remember it. I don't do that well. And I was very challenged through this, not to establish a new holiday. That's not what I'm talking about. But as I look back on the things that God has done in my life, I can remember them if I try real hard. But what if I marked that as an opportunity to remember the mighty deeds of God in my life? What if I said, you know what, I'm going to mark this date because this was the date that God did something significant in my life. And I'm going to raise a standing stone, so to speak, like the Jews used to do when God does something significant. So that when my children ask me, why do we do this year after year? That I can point back and say, because God did something fantastic. Because something traumatic happened in our lives and God brought us near to Himself. I challenge you with that this morning. Why would I challenge you to do that? Listen to what Psalm 77 says. I'm going to read verses 11 through 15. Okay? Why would we want to establish and remember who God is and what He's done. Psalm 77, 11 through 15. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. 
Pause and think about that. But let me read verses 1 through 10, which precede all that. Hey, 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 look what God has done. Look who God is. Verses 1 through 10. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints, Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the, lo- the years long ago. I said, let, re- let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. That's where he was just before he said, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. He was in a place where he was saying, God, when I think about you, I moan. I'm in a deep, dark pit of despair. Where are you, God? Then he says, I know what I'll do. I'll remember what God has done in the past. Listen to me, those of you folks who are in the ditch right now. And I know you're sitting here. I know you are. Remember what God has done. Don't let yourself drift off into, oh no, God has forsaken me, without bringing yourself back to, but God has been glorious and faithful and beautiful and wonderful in the past. Therefore, I will bring to mind, to my remembrance, the deeds of the Lord. Not just from my past, but from the God who split the Red Sea. From the God who crushed the city of Jericho flat! The God who opened the Jordan River so that His people could pass through into the Promised Land. The God who delivered King David. The God who gave Isaiah a vision of himself as holy, holy, holy. The God who came down in the form of a man and paid the penalty for my sins 2,000 years ago. The God who in my life has worked wonders and marvels and delivered me from the hand of the enemy time and time and time and time again. In your despair, preserve the memory of the God who is your deliverer. And make it an ongoing practice to mark the times when God delivers you and remember it and bring it up and celebrate! This is the day that God did this in our family. This is the day that God saved my life. This is the day that God called me out of darkness into marvelous light. This is the day when we walked out of the hospital with our daughter released from this crazy thing that we were afraid was going to kill her. Mark them, remember them, and celebrate them. Preserve those memories so that when you're in the ditch, you can bring them to mind. Unselfishness. Yikes. But they laid no hands on the plunder. 
Mm. I'm not ready for this application point, just so you know. I need more tools is what I need. They laid no hands on the plunder. They were justified in doing it. They could have done it. It would have been right. Let me read something. Good sense, Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Let me read that again. Because I know I didn't hear it. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is His glory to overlook an offense. Oh, we are quick to lay our hands on the plunder. What am I meaning? What am I saying? I'm saying when we have a right to do something, when we have a right to get that last jab in, when we have a right to defend our actions, that we know we're wrong. When our spouse puts us in a place where we feel like we have to defend ourselves, we feel right to come out swinging. And we lay our hands on the plunder because we can. Nothing wrong with it. It's right. I have the right to do this. And nobody's going to think any less of me if I do it. Matter of fact, they'd probably cheer me on and tell me to take the plunder. But good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is His glory to overlook an offense. What if we were the kind of people who didn't just care about our rights? What if we were the kind of people who didn't lay their hands on the plunder? But who said, you know what? I'll let it go. Paul said this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? So what's going on is, these Corinthians in the church are fighting each other. And they've got a right! to take their brother to law, to court. And Paul said, what? You're going to go before an unrighteous judge to decide between between two holy people about what's right, about what's just. Are you crazy? You're going to judge angels. And you can't come to an agreement because you want to preserve your rights and look right in the eyes of everybody else? Have you lost your mind? And then he says this. Are you re- you're not ready for this? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And here you go. 
Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why don't you just let it go? Well, because he, well, because she, well, because they. Just let it go. Well, but they did me wrong. Okay? Why not rather suffer wrong? Well, they, 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 they stole from me. They took from me. Why not rather just be defrauded? Did not Jesus, our Savior, do the same thing? Did He not suffer wrong at the hands of angry, sinful men? Why can't we just be like Him and say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's the heart and the mind of Jesus. You defending yourself because you can and because it's your right doesn't make it right. Oh, for a group of people who aren't about defending their rights as Christians and who say, you know what, I'd just as soon be defrauded. I'd just as soon be wronged than to go against my brother just because I can. It seems to me that's what the Spirit of God would have us to do. But, but you don't know my situation. Nope, I don't. I don't. But I know that you could just as soon be defrauded. You can just as soon be wronged, wronged and God be pleased with that. Unselfishness. It's not about my rights. It's not about my wants. It's not about what I can do. It's about what I should do. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus would do in a situation instead of defending myself. Last point. Remembrance. Now we've talked about preservation and marking those things that God has done in the past. We've talked about unselfishness. And the last one is remembrance. I want to ask you this question. How will people remember you? We see Esther and we see Mordecai and we see this power and this glory. Is that what we're after? Heaven's Now, if we can obtain power and use it for godly things, yes, that's great. But what I'm asking you is this. You will be remembered by the deeds that the people who are watching you now are going to carry out that they've seen in you. Let me clarify that. You are influencing someone. Everybody in here is influencing someone. And somebody is going to do what you do. Somebody is going to say what you said. Somebody's going to follow in your footsteps and you are going to be remembered by what they do. Boy, I see his daddy in him. And let me speak to you fathers for just a minute. You've got some people that are following you. And you will be remembered by their deeds. That's Jason's boy. Those are Jason's daughters. That's Jason's family. How are you going to be remembered? You're going to be remembered like Haman was remembered as his ten sons hung on a gallows because they were so pig-headed and selfish just like their daddy. 
that they couldn't put away their greed or their hatred long enough to live? Dads, you play an irreplaceable role in the life of your children. Moms, you do too. I'm not taking away from that. But I'm telling you, dads, you're responsible. How are you going to be remembered? When they say, that boy is just like his daddy. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And the rest of you that aren't daddies, you're influencing somebody. Somebody's going to carry on your legacy. What kind of legacy will you leave behind? What kind of inheritance will you leave to the people that come after you? I'm not talking about financially. What are you going to leave them? Proverbs 13, 22. This is about money and it applies to what we're talking about here as we finish. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. You are leaving an inheritance to your children's children. You are leaving an inheritance to the people that the people who are following you see and pass on to other people. And a good person passes on an inheritance that people look at and say, that's godly, that's good, that's right. How will you be remembered? The things that we preserve and remember, the things that we're unselfish with, will help to solidify this legacy as people remember us. This is what Moors do. This is what Smiths do. This is what my people do. How will you be remembered? Let's pray. God, we believe that you are faithful and you have preserved our lives through so many trials and temptations and fears. God, help us to mark these things well and to celebrate them and to bring them to remembrance when we are down. Help us to remind each other when we are down about the glorious deeds of the God who saves and delivers His people. Surely I would have despaired if I had not known that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. God, help us to be unselfish people who do not defend our rights at the expense of other people's feelings, thoughts, and perceptions of us. Help us to be those who would just as soon rather be wronged Help us to be those who would just as soon be defrauded than to defend our rights and get what is rightfully ours. And God, help us to leave a godly, holy legacy to the people who will follow in our footsteps. And they will follow in our footsteps. We trust you to do it, God, because in and of ourselves we cannot, but in you, through you, and by you we can do all things. So help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand to receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace himself 
Sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you. Stay and eat with us if you can.